It's the Religious Studies Project. I'm David. And, and I'm Chris. And we are here again with a podcast for you this week. Chris is the interviewer as <laughs> well am. as the host. Oh, no. That's why you're hearing me talk. Um, the interview E is Ilka Lynchstedt. And the subject is critical approaches to pre-Islamic Arabia. Very interesting. Let's have it. Given the way in which many introductory courses present the history of early Islam and pre-Islamic Arabia, we may be tempted to think that the historical facts were well-established and the narrative uncontested. However, this is far from the case. What evidence do we actually have from this period, and how may it challenge the conventional narratives that have become canonized in both sacred and academic histories? What misconceptions might be challenged by modern epigraphic work, or the application of social identity theories to ancient texts? And why might this matter for contemporary Islam, contemporary Islamic studies, or for the study of religion more broadly? Joining me today in Helsinki is Ilka Lindstedt, who holds a PhD and title of docent in Arabic and Islamic studies at the University of Helsinki, where he's currently university lecturer in Islamic theology at the Faculty of Theology. He's published studies on early Islam, Arabic historiography, and Arabic epigraphy, and recent edited volumes in English include the co-edited Case Studies in Transmission and the forthcoming Translation and Transmission in the First Millennium, which are both with Ugarit Verlag. And you can see his institutional website or academia.edu page for more information. And we'll link to that on the website. So first off, Dr. Ilka Lindstedt, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> so broadly, we're talking about pre-Islamic Arabia and early Islam today, um, which will obviously be something that's quite familiar to you, but to the broader religious studies community might not be. So if we could start off just broadly telling me about your area of research what and what kind of sources are you using? How do you go about doing such research and things like that? And what are you interested in and why? Thank you. Uh, so I'm interested in, in late antique Arabia, pre-Islamic Arabia from the 3rd century uh, common era onward uh, up till the uh, early Islamic period, let's say, um, the 8th century common era. So the Prophet Muhammad lived uh, in in uh, in the 6th and 7th century, uh, died in 632. So that gives a sort of a framework where we are we are operating. And I'm especially interested in in approaching early Islam with social identity theories formulated in social psychology and how those can be used to to study early Islam and pre-Islamic Arabia as well. And and I try to use as much as possible that we have at hand uh, dated materials, contemporary materials, especially epigraphy is an important source set that we have from pre-Islamic Arabia and early Islamic era as well. Excellent. Um, you might want to, I actually had to look up what epigraphic sources meant before we, we spoke about this. So you might, if, if you clarify for our listeners what they are, and also, um, more of our listeners are probably familiar with perhaps biblical studies, um, uh, because, you know, it tends to sit in study of religion departments in some way. We, I certainly did some biblical studies back in the day. So it'd be interesting to hear how similar or different you might find, um, might describe your work to, to the work that might be done by a scholar of the, the Hebrew Bible, for example. 
Yeah. So uh, epi by epigraphic sources, I mean inscriptions, and in this particular case, especially uh, lapidary inscriptions, so inscriptions en engraved in stone, and, and those have been, uh, you know, preserved in, in tens of thousands from from pre-Islamic and early Islamic Arabia. And uh, so, and, and I would say that my study, and I, I definitely use as much as possible approaches and methods developed in, in biblical studies, especially, uh, you know, the understanding of, of that we should use contemporary sources as, as much as possible. Most people uh, dealing with early Islam have, have been using uh, Islamic era much later sources to study the life of the Prophet or pre-Islamic Arabia, for instance. So, uh, and also social identity approach is something that has been used in biblical studies since the 1990s, especially to study the New Testament, but also the Hebrew Bible and see how people uh, in those texts and how those texts categorize, categorize the world. And also one question that has been studied quite a lot in biblical studies is the question of the parting of the ways. When do Judaism mm. and Christianity become uh, different categories? How, uh, when did people see, start to see them as, as Christians as opposed to uh, Jews? And, and that question is something that hasn't been asked too much in, 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 in Islamic studies. So up until 1990s, very few people asked the question, when did Muslims actually uh, mm. start to categorize? them as Muslims self-identify as, as 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 Muslims. So, so that's kind of kind of new question. Excellent. And we'll get to that um, towards the end of the interview. Um, so before we start diving into um, the, the the misconceptions that um, might be challenged by some of your work and others into pre-Islamic Arabia, um, we should get some of those misconceptions out there onto the table. Um, Again, our listeners may not just know the sort of basic narrative, but but what are some of the times, places, and traditional narratives that we're talking about here relating to to early Islam and pre-Islamic Arabia? I know that I certainly have always thought of uh, you know the uh, the Arabian Peninsula was full of the nomads um, who all thought of themselves as Arabs, and um, Mecca was a really central key trading post, and they all came there, and there were lots of deities in the Kaaba and things like that. that. That's the narrative that I had, but I think that's not quite right. <laughs> so maybe like, let's tell us a bit about the context and then um, how we can challenge that with some of these sources that you look at. Right. So um, I guess the received tradition, we have to start with the, or we could start with the birth of the Prophet Muhammad around the year 570 in Mecca. And like you said, in, in the Islamic era narratives, Mecca is portrayed as being a place where almost everybody was polytheist. So uh, according to these Arabic narratives, there might have been a couple of Christians or Jews living in Mecca, but there were only a, a few of them and they were a few and far between. So 99% of the people, according to these uh, sources, seem to be polytheists. So that's 570 or so. And then, then in 610, the prophet starts to receive his first revelations uh, conveyed by the archangel Gabriel, but coming ultimately from, from God. And uh, at that time, uh, the Meccan polytheist, Aristocracy is not happy with the monotheist message that the Prophet Muhammad is trying to convey in Mecca. So uh, Muhammad receives very few 
convert very few followers. One of them is actually his wife, Khadija, who, who becomes one of the first or maybe the first convert uh, to Islam. Um, but still, he has very, very few followers in, in those years, in 610s, and, and the polytheist uh, aristocracy, as it's usually called in, in, in Western scholarship, uh, comes, uh, tries to come after the prophet and, and his followers, and they even torture some of his followers. And this uh, situation uh, leads to, to emigration uh, to Mecca, this called the Hijra, the emigration to Mecca, which happens in 622, uh, and this becomes later the, the year, uh, the, the first year of the, the Islamic era and Islamic mm-hmm. calendar. And in Medina, uh, the situation becomes uh, better for, for the Prophet, who, so he rises quite quickly to the top of, of this city-state, uh, as we might call it, of Medina, and he becomes both the religious and, and the political leader of, of Medina. And uh, so uh, early Muslims of Medina and, and the politics of Mecca are at war during those years, and, and uh, around the year 630, early Muslims are, are victorious and, and conquer, conquer Mecca. But still, uh, the Prophet uh, stays in Medina and actually dies there in 632. So that's sort of the traditional narrative hmm. that we have here. So, um, before we challenge that narrative through some of the, um, I guess, um, written sources, um, what, what, what kind of sources do we have from around that period? Um, you know, I know that there's sort of, um, more literary sources, there's these inscriptions. So maybe just tell us what kind of sources exactly, and then maybe provide some challenges to that narrative. So uh, up until very recently, people, scholars were using uh, Islamic era Arabic literary sources that we have <laughs> quite a lot of them. So thousands and thousands of pages uh, of historiographical sources of different sort of literary genres written, written in Arabic. But that uh, Arabic literature is actually quite late. So usually said that it's born in the 8th century and, and starts to develop from, from that century onward. So it's at least 100 years later than, than the prophet. So, uh, but still most of the scholars have, have been using that source, uh, set to, uh, to engage with, with pre-Islamic Arabia as mm. well and the, and, and the life of the prophet. But, um, recently, uh, people have been turning their side towards contemporary sources that we might have. And these are especially these inscriptions that I was uh, mentioning. So um, from pre-Islamic Arabia, from the south and from the north, we have a vast quantity of, of epigraphic material, actually. So from the south, from Yemen, we have something like 10,000 uh, pre-Islamic uh, South Arabian inscriptions. And from the north, we have even even more, so something like 50,000 or more are published now. And, and all the time, uh, people doing fieldwork are, are finding more and more mm. of these inscriptions. So And many of them are, are yet to be published, even though they have already been recorded. So it's a, it's a vast quantity of material and, and written in different languages, so not all of it is in Arabic, actually, a very little mm. of it, or, or, or only a subset of, of this material is, is, is in Arabic. So that's something that we have uh, from pre-Islamic era. 
Uh, then from Islamic era, of course, we also have Arabic uh, inscriptions. Uh, not so many of them, but uh, let's say that from the first 100 years of, of Hijra, so the uh, Islamic era, we have something like 100 dated inscriptions and probably much more that are undated, but we can maybe uh, paleographically date uh, to that era as well. So we have quite a few of, hmm. of, of inscriptions that are actually produced in Arabia, preserved in Arabia and produced also oftentimes by people who are not part of the elite. So that's important to know this. So much of this material is actually graffiti. So uh, stuff that the people were just writing or engraving in stone when they were en route to somewhere and they were camping somewhere. So they uh, spent uh, an hour or so to to carve their name and and a message uh, simpler or uh, longer uh, on stone. And so that's very important uh, set of sources that has not been utilized very much. And so what what have these sorts of sources um done perhaps to that traditional narrative that we that you laid out beforehand? Maybe a couple of key examples of, of things that might challenge that. Yeah, especially the polytheist milieu of, of Arabia in the pre Islamic era has is something that has been challenged by these by these inscriptions. So for instance, in Yemen, we see quite clearly that up to the 4th century Common Era, all of this uh, epigraphic material is polytheist. So there are mention of many gods, Al-Makar, for instance, who is uh, a god uh, associated with moon or Shamas, associated with sun. So sort of this traditional polytheist milieu. But then in the 4th century, something happens quite drastically, and we see in the epigraphic record that... Uh, uh, only monotheism is present in these texts, and and this continues up to the sixth century when when the prophet was was born. And and in particular, it seems that the form of monotheism is is Judaism that was adopted at mm. least by the elite in Yemen, but probably also by by um, the lay people to an extent at least. And so we don't have from the fourth century up to the Sixth uh, century, we don't have any polytheist uh, evidence from Yemen at all. So all the inscriptions that we have are either Jewish or Christian in in nature. So they okay. signal some sort of uh, monotheist and also Jewish or Christian uh, identity. And then also in the north, uh, we see that Christianity, uh, in particular, is is spreading and in advancing from the third century onward uh and uh, we we have uh uh we don't have so much material as as from the south uh when it comes to late antiquity uh so say, say the 3rd uh, century onward but uh but everything that we have seems to point towards the uh the idea that christianity was was spreading and spreading fast so actually when we look at what we have from the 6th century which is the century when when the prophet was born we don't have a single uh text produced and preserved in arabia that would be polytheist so everything that we have is is monotheist, either Christian or, or Jewish, or then something that we cannot actually mm. uh, pinpoint what it actually is, or then it maybe didn't even matter to the people who were were engraving those inscriptions. But this is the case. Of course, the, the Hijaz or the Western Arabia, where the Prophet uh, lived, uh, 
according to the traditional narrative and also according to the uh, majority of, of scholars. So from the Hijaz, we don't actually have so much material or material at all from the 6th century. So that's, uh, of course, uh, sort of still uh, like a question mark, what's going on in the, in the Hijaz in the 6th century. But in any case, it seems that in, in, in parts of and in most parts of Arabia, uh, Christianity and Judaism were, were spreading fast. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> maybe one more example here before we get on to your, your social identity work. I mean, perhaps, so I was quite surprised to hear that Mecca maybe wasn't quite the, the big deal that <laughs> we've been led to believe. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, in this Islamic era, uh, sources, which, like I said, are, are late, they, they seem to... Uh, describe Mecca as a place which was pilgrimage center, which was a, you know a trade center uh, along the trade routes, maybe that crisscrossed Arabia. But uh, when we actually look at, at pre-Islamic evidence, for instance, Greek literature, Greek geographical literature, and also these inscriptions uh, that we have from Arabia, uh, none of them actually mention Mecca. None. And, and they do mention, uh, quite a few, uh, Arabian cities and towns. So, for instance, they mention Medina, Yathrib, uh, mm. which was the old name of, of Medina, uh, quite, a, quite a lot of times. So it seems that Medina was, uh, an important, or was mm. along these trade routes that started from Yemen and, and went to Syria and, and, and the Mediterranean. Uh, but, Mecca maybe wasn't such a big deal. So it might have been a local center, but it's not mentioned at all in the in the extant evidence that we have from pre-Islamic era. So that makes me think, at least, that Mecca wasn't that important in the pre-Islamic era. Hmm. But obviously there might be various reasons that it then may... It's obviously very important now and yeah. became very important. So there may be an element of uh, sort of reading that into past so um we've only got about 10 minutes left this always happens um so some of your other work then is taken um sort of um, a quite modern social identity approach and specifically what i've read anyway was looking at in the quran looking at the the sort of different um group dynamics in there um, perhaps you could just quickly introduce what a social identity approach might be and then how you have used that to, to analyze the different groups um, right. in the Quran. Yeah. So uh, the social identity approach was developed in social psychology since the 1970s by Henry Tatchville and his students and later many more scholars. And the approach tries to look at social identity, especially. So not so much uh, self-identity, but social identity. So sort of the sum of group affiliations and identities that we have and, and, and possess and signal. So, uh, and it, it makes a set of predicaments based on, on experiments and uh, ethnographic research, uh, what uh, group affiliation does and categorize categorization uh, does in, in, in the group uh, uh, dynamics. So uh, people have quite clearly noticed that uh, uh, this categorization into in-group that we affiliate with and into the out-group, which is the others, uh, this sort of categorization is very natural in mm -hmm. us and uh, it usually and oftentimes leads 
to the fact that people are uh, more helpful to the in-group members. They are uh, they attach more positive adjectives to the in-group members, and they allow that uh, they are different uh, people in in the in-group. So sort of heterogeneous mm. uh, view of the in-group, whereas the out-group is uh, usually seen as a sort of like a block, a monolith, uh, homo- homogeneous uh, group mm. of people. And, um, uh, and sometimes it is, and oftentimes it is, uh, stereotyped in, in a, in a way. So, uh, negative, uh, negative adjective and attributes are attached to the, to the outgroup. Mm. Yeah. And you might have sort of positive attribution bias towards an in-group where, you know, some behavior exhibited by a member of your in-group will be interpreted uh, positively. And if the same behavior is in the out-group, it might have a different interpretation but based on the same thing, right. that kind yeah. of dynamics. Yeah. Okay. So how does one study that in the Quran? I mean, you said there it, it's maybe initially developed as a more sort of contemporary ethnographic thing. So how might one study that in this uh, ancient text? And, and then what have you found regarding to different um, religion-related groups? Yeah. So I, I think the social identity approach gives a lot of insights to ancient and all pre-modern texts hmm. as well. So instead of actually uh, asking uh because usually, oftentimes people have approached the Quran and especially the polemic verses in, in the Quran uh, as signaling that there was some sort of clash between the groups, whereas people uh, that have been using the social identity approach in biblical studies have noticed that oftentimes these polemical verses or polemical passages in, 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 in different texts, they actually ha- have to do with creation of the in-group identity and creation mm. of this distinct identity. So it doesn't always have to be the case that uh, that there has been some sort of class I- in the past, but it actually might have something to do with the present, that the text is trying to signal uh, a, a distinction toward the out-group and trying to make this difference, whereas the uh, uh, sort of the... Uh, facts on the ground were much more varied and mm. much more there much much more gray area in 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 how people were viewing themselves and the others and also uh like i said up up till uh, 1990s people didn't really ask in islamic studies the question when did uh, muslims start to view themselves as muslims as distinct to something uh, else as distinct to jews christians and and mm-hmm. so on but uh, in 1990s, Professor Fred Donner at, at the University of Chicago posed this question, uh, but it hasn't been studied still in depth. There hasn't been too much people actually uh, trying to approach with that question. But I, I think it, it, it is a very important question, and we I think we should start with no preconceptions and start with contemporary sources, start with the Quran, and then... Uh, try to understand the Quran in the context of what we know of pre-Islamic Arabia, and then see in the dated materials such as papyri and and the inscriptions how that uh, identity evolves Mm. later. So when we actually look at the Quran, we see that the in-group appellation that is used there for for the in-group is believers, mu'minun. It's not yet 
Muslims, mm. Muslimun. So uh, that is something that seems to happen later. And not only that, but also there are a number of verses that seem to uh, categorize uh, Jews and Christians as part of the part of the group, part of the believers. So that makes me think that the situation is is uh, not one where Islamic identity was born already. Uh, at the time of the prophet, it wasn't ready at the time, but it evolved later. And when we actually look at the, the inscriptions that we have that are later than, than the Quran, later than the prophet Muhammad, uh, there we can see that it takes around 100 years, uh, before people start to call themselves Muslims mm. or call them their religion Islam. So it's only 740s when we see this sort of categorization. Uh, happening and also mention of distinctly, distinctly Islamic rites that happens in the early 8th century, uh, not before. Mm. But, you know, um, again, in a sort of standard intro to Islam class, we'll maybe hear about the, these verses, you know, differentiating Islam from Christianity, you know, that they, they say that God is three, God is not one, not three, he is one, and, and all those sorts of things. So so there are some things in there which are sort of maybe anti-Christian, anti-Jewish. Um, how, do, how does that play into what you've just said about believers as a group? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there, there's definitely polemics against Trinitarianism uh, and against shirk, which means associating anything with God. So mm. that's the sort of absolute monotheism is the central message of of uh, of the Quran, definitely. And I would say that any Jew or Christian who wasn't willing to uh, part with uh, those uh, associating uh, tendencies wouldn't be accepted mm. as part of the part of the in group. So Trinitarian is uh, is definitely rejected in the Quran. But then are there are a number of verses which say that Christians are uh, closest uh, to lo- closest in love to the believers, and they are pious, and they pray, and and they will get a reward in 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 the afterlife. And then there are a number of verses that talk about the people of the book uh, in in positive manner. And the people of the book seems to include, well, the Quran doesn't really spell it out who the people of the book are, but it seems to include at least Jews and Christians and possibly others as well. And and so there are a number of verses who that seem to uh, suggest that those people uh, in the people of the book uh, can be part of the in-group if they are willing to part some of their views which are against the Quranic message and if they are willing to accept the prophet Muhammad as a prophet and and the Quran as a revelation. So those are definitely sort of uh, identity signals that people and uh, sort of core values that people have to accept. But then there are a number of others that, that are, uh, are later Islamic developments uh, for instance, uh, there is no conversion ritual mentioned in the Quran. Uh, the five daily prayers are not mentioned in the Quran. Prayer in general is, but, but the five daily prayers yeah. are not. So th- those sort of things. There are also two verses that uh, explicitly say that Jews and Christians and, and, and the believers and, 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 and maybe others as well uh, who believe in God and the last day will get a heavenly reward. And um, 
those verses are then in later Islamic traditions uh, understood as meaning Jews and Christians that lived before the Prophet. But the Quran doesn't say that, and it seems that in the Quran uh, the situation is the present tense. So uh, it seems that the Quran actually promises there uh, some of the Jews and Christians uh, uh, heavenly reward and sal- salvation uh, as such. Excellent. So obviously I could probe much further, but time is going to be our enemy here. So I would urge the listeners to, to check out your webpage and dive into some of this. But as a sort of final question, I mean, why does this stuff matter? Um, I've often, you know, in a sense, um, you know, as with the say historical Jesus studies, you mm-hmm. know, it, you said we can spend a lot of time working out what exactly was going on, what was happening at the time. But in a sense, does it matter at all? Because the the figure is taking on a life of its own in in a number of different ways. So, why does this sort of close study of these sources matter? And and what's its relevance maybe for? I guess there's contemporary Islam, there's Mm. contemporary Islamic studies, the study of religion more broadly. Uh Yeah, that's a a good question. Um, To an extent, I think it probably doesn't matter to to a lot of people. And and maybe uh, people in academia have a tendency to overemphasize the meaning of their research in in the wider society. And and you're right, people... uh, scholars who are working in uh, historical Jesus studies, their their studies are not probably so relevant to your average believer, mm. your average Christian in, in uh, say, Finland or the UK or South Africa or wherever. So uh, Jesus is something that matters. Uh, the Jesus figure that matters to them is probably different than what, what a, a scholar of historical Jesus would would reconstruct what I think is has some sort of intrinsic value here is trying to look at how what did these seventh century people or sixth century people who wrote their inscriptions how did they see the world hmm. and I, I think it sort of uh, gives value to their views uh, and starts tries to understand the world as they saw it but when it comes to contemporary Islam and contemporary Islamic studies, of course, uh, like I said, there's uh, different different uh, verses dealing with the Jews, dealing with Christians uh, and others in, in the Quran, and those can be understood in, in different ways. And, and there are a number of people working inside the tradition uh, as Muslims and, and as scholars who are approaching these same verses and maybe drawing uh, similar or the same conclusion uh, that that I am here. So, for instance, Munim Siri, who has wrote a fine book called Scripture of Polemics, uh, tries to see uh, how the Quran itself classifies uh, different religions and Islam and also probes how uh, later and, and modern uh, exegetes and modernist exegetes have understood these verses. And, and he seems to suggest that the Quran can be understood in, in, in pluralistic ways and it can mm. be understood as, as uh, not being all the time in polemics with, uh, with, with Jews and Christians and so on. So, of course, it might have contemporary relevance, but, you know, yeah. I, I'll leave it yeah. to the listener. 
But it it does it, it's a good example of that that fine line that in the study of religion in general that we walk between um, you know not denying the the uniqueness and boundedness of of a tradition, but at the same time pointing out um, that these things are historical developments and they're connected to their context and sort of some may perceive that as as an attack or as you know denigrating and others may see it as you know like validating and we're sort of walking that line of saying things are more complicated than the common narrative might say um just a final question i mean what are you what are you working on just now (laughs) (laughs) yeah i would hate it if someone asked me (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm actually uh with a colleague of mine and we're writing a book about the prophet muhammad and you know the narratives told about him the interpretations of him both in in the medieval era in in the uh, and today uh this is going to be in finnish though so (laughs) but yeah excellent well i'm i'm sure some outputs will come out of that in english as well and um Hey, you've now recorded an English language podcast. You might record a Finnish language podcast about the same thing. Um, So, Ilka Lindstedt, thank you so much for joining us on the Religious Studies Project. Thank you. Thanks so much for that, Ilka and Chris. Uh, You're welcome. Yeah, no, it was was fun. Um, Back in February in Helsinki, which was facilitated by our good friend uh, Teemu Taira. Is he a colleague of Timu's then? Um, they are colleagues, yes, um, but um, the the department sort of spread over different buildings, so I don't know that they they ever really interact that much. Um, their study of religion and their theology, and Ilka's within the theological building, but they are part of the same department. And obviously, he's doing well, as you'll have just heard, he's not doing theology in that sense, much like uh, at a UK university where you might have someone doing, say, critical biblical studies, but within a, a divinity school or theology. Yes, indeed. Or um, critical approaches to non-religion within a divinity school, for that matter. Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, that's good, though. It's uh, We don't have enough critical approaches to the study of Islam. And if you're interested why that's the case, you might want to read Aaron Hughes' recent book on the subject or uh, indeed some of our previous interviews. Uh, Keeping up the uh, critical approaches angle, I mean, obviously every RSP output is critical. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But um, David, so from me doing an interview to David doing an interview next week on um, Buddhism in the critical classroom. Yes, a conversation with uh, Matthew Hayes, which we did online. And then like two days later, I flew to LA where he is anyway and realized we probably could have done it in uh, in person. But uh, nonetheless, uh, interesting conversation um, on uh, the flipping what might be seen as pedagogical problems into advantages and using it to our, our benefit. Excellent. So we come back next week. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, I don't think we've really got anything more to say, except, you know, just keep coming back for the podcast. Check out the website. We've got this huge archive of material now. We're um, we're over 300 episodes, mm. I think, now. And, uh, yeah, David and I have just been doing a bit of talking about, um, you know, winding up the 2018-2019 season and what we're going to be doing over the summer and maybe a bit of... 
Uh, we might be advertising for some, we will be advertising for some new ways mm. to get involved in the team. So keep your eyes peeled. Yeah, more about that in a couple of weeks. But in the meantime, just, you know, if you've ever thought of contributing to the project in one way or another, it's worth starting to think about that now. Thanks, Thanks for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop, and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.